0: BLOB TALK RADIO
1: We are the show that kind of tackles some pretty difficult topics sometimes. And I must say, I think today's is one of the most difficult we've had, certainly not the most, but one of them, because it is so pervasive and so all-inclusive and so misunderstood. I'm talking about how abusers can use mental health to further victimize Um, uh, uh, a a target, uh, how how they can use not only accusations, not only their own knowledge, um, but also the court system. Uh, Mental health professionals themselves can be used. Uh, Sometimes they don't even know that they're being used. And uh, abusers, of course, are um, absolute pros at learning how to use people to accomplish their ends. So today we're talking about, she's the crazy one. How many times have we heard this, Rachel? Many, many. Many, many.
2: Many, Rachel Graber
1: is... Our guest, she is with the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and she knows exactly what we're talking about. She has a background uh, as a school counselor. Um, she's also been an intern with the Women's Resource and Action Center, and she leads the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence Legislative Affairs in Washington, D.C. She's had a lot of experience in working with domestic violence on various issues, and we are absolutely uh, welcoming her to the show today. We're also privileged to have Steve Cummings with us, Steve, is it okay if I call you Steve?
0: That's perfect, yes.
1: Okay, great. That's great. Steve? Uh, mm-hmm. Steve uh, comes to us from the University of Iowa, where he's a clinical, clinical, per, clinical professor of school social work, and uh, he comes from a background of hospital social work, where he has worked uh, with a lot of intimate partner violence situations. So he comes from that background, but he also comes from the background of a mental health professional. So, again, we're very privileged to have you with us as well, Steve. Uh, thank you for joining you. us. Good.
0: Yeah, thank you. So, Great to be here. Thanks.
1: Thanks. Um, I don't think this is a topic that I have heard or read much about. Um, I, I did do a cursory search for some studies, some sort of published works on this particular topic using mental health um, to further abuse, and I found up, I found nothing. I came up with nothing, and yet anyone who's worked in the area of intimate partner violence knows that it's there at so many levels. Am I right, Rachel?
2: Absolutely, and you know. I, there are there are a lot of things that we know that that are happening that are really hard to measure, so there's not always a lot of quantitative data um but we we have stories upon stories upon stories of people who um they are admitted to inpatient psych because of um their abusers claiming that they have a mental illness they lose custody of their children that's that's a really really big one and um we get a lot of phone calls about that. Um, we don't provide direct services or legal, legal counsel, but, you know, we have parents who they have nowhere to turn and they're, they're in such pain. Um, and so those are, those are kind of the things that we see a lot. And there, there are two different angles here. Um, one is using claims of mental health, the mental illness, as a, as a tool of power and control. And then the other angle is the actual psychological abuse, right? Um, psychological abuse, that, that that's trauma caused by verbal abuse, um, threats. You know, uh, people, the, the abuser will constantly criticize, blame, um, convince the victim that the abuse is her fault, undermine her self-confidence and self-sense of worth. Um, and then, then one thing that actually is, it's very common. It's called gaslighting, and the purpose is to make the victim question his or her sanity and sense of reality. So,
1: you know where that comes from. I, that term. You know, I, I, I would like to explain that because we use that term. We yeah. use that term, but I don't think a lot of people understand where that came from. There was actually a movie back in like the 1930s yeah. called Gaslight. And it was back when, I mean, the, I, I've actually never seen the movie, but um, it was back when you used to have to literally light the, the gas lights in your house when it got dark. And my understanding is, is that in the movie, the woman would come down. She was a rich woman, a wealthy woman, and the man who married her was trying to drive her crazy so that he could then get control of her money. So she would come downstairs when it was dusk. She would light the lamps. She would go about her business. She'd go back upstairs, come back down, and all the lamps were out. And she would say to her husband, "Why did you turn the lights out?" And he said, "There were no lights on." And mm-hmm. little things like that to make her question her own sanity and to question her own um, reality. And so that's where that term comes from. And I think if you explain, you know, that that movie uh, it makes it so completely understandable what gaslighting means. Where you have, where you do things, you perfect, per- purposely manipulate things so that the person questions their own sanity. Um, it's one thing if somebody says you're nuts and you know you're not, but it's another thing when you start to question whether, in fact, you might be. So I just wanted to give that little explanation of what gaslighting meant. Thank you, Rachel. Go ahead, go on. Oh,
2: thanks, Heather. Um, yeah. And things like that, they are, in the long term, can have a much um, more pervasive Mental, mental health outcomes, right? So um, seven out of 10 psychologically abused women display symptoms of PTSD and or depression. Um, it's actually a stronger predictor of PTSD than physical abuse. So yeah. I think that we need to also make sure that when we're talking about mental health, we're not attaching this stigma. We're not saying um, that if someone is suffering from mental health issues, particularly in this case as a result of, um, of, of abuse, that that doesn't undermine the victim's credibility at all.
1: Right. right. Well, and at some point, doesn't it doesn't kind of become a chicken and an egg. I, you know, I mean, perhaps. I mean, certainly people suffer from mental illness. I know we've had it in my family. Um, so that's not uncommon. Um, so it wouldn't be uncommon if there were somebody involved in a domestic violence situation who did uh, suffer from some mental illness. However, what we're talking about is the um, use. Uh, and the the misnaming of mental illness in order to meet an abuser's own ends, which is basically power and control. Um, it, am I explaining that the way you understand it, Rachel?
2: Absolutely. Um, and actually, if I could just interject here, I know that this is a difficult topic for some people, um, and it might be triggering, or there might be people who are listening who are wondering, oh is this happening to me? Um, and so I just want to make sure that people are aware of the National Domestic Violence Hotline. It's a really great resource there, 24-7. Um, they have, I think, services in 120 languages or something like that. Um, and their phone number is 1-800-799-7233. That's 1-800-799-7233. Um, they also have chat and text. Uh, and their website is thehotline.org. So I just want to make sure that people are able to access that that help if they need it as this conversation continues.
1: Thank you. And it's also a good resource if you're not sure. I mean, oftentimes, I mean, if somebody tells you that the sky is red often enough and enough people tell you, pretty soon you're going to question whether the sky really is red. So if you have questions and you want to bounce things off, this is the, this, that's a perfectly non-threatening way uh, to try and kind of touch base. You know, the, uh, uh, Mark Twain, remember the old author Mark Twain? So that really wasn't his real name, but that terminology, Mark Twain, came from the riverboats where they would stick a pole in the water to mark how, the depth of the water. And so I always think of that when in, in my life when I'm kind of sticking that pole in the ground to check the depths of things. Um, you know, to to mark the twain, you know, to see where I'm at. Um, and I think that, that the mental health hotline would, is a great place to do that. Sometimes you just have to check the depth, and then you come away knowing, nope, nope, I'm safe, I know what I am, you know, I know what's coming ahead. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Also, I want to throw this out. We already have a couple callers in queue, and I'm going to get to you. Thank you very much. But let's lay a little bit more groundwork before we go there. If you'd like to join us with a call in, or the chat room is open as well, 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. So we're talking to start with, about uh, domestic violence situations where someone is accused or almost driven um, to uh, the verge of mental illness because of the abuser. Steve, did you see that during any of your work in the hospital with domestic violence or intimate partner violence victims? Yeah, I said
0: as I was going through some of my notes here okay. just to make sure I had some appropriate examples, if I, if I understand correctly, you're asking did, was this sort of um, approach to uh, the abuse of this? concept of mental illness, was that that applied in the hospital setting? Um, Yes. Is that correct? Well, I'm asking if you
1: saw this in your work, if you saw um, women who came in questioning their own mental health because they'd been accused of having uh, issues by their abusers.
0: Yes, and in two situations where – and I'll try to be as general as possible because obviously we're talking about real people – both of these cases came up during my early years engaging in this practice, so I actually look back on them with a little, uh, with some thought of how could I have done better. The first case actually used uh, was a situation where a woman was admitted into our inpatient unit for psychiatry uh, under a court order a civil commitment, and what that means is that. Somebody had to file an affidavit locally in the uh, area where where the concern was located, or the concern was, and then a judge reviewed it and then said, yes, this person needs to be committed, um, or at least held for an evaluation because of their psychiatric condition being of such a concern that they may do harm to themselves or others. So the patient was admitted, and part of my role was to do my piece of the biopsychosocial assessment. In other words, kind of a background history, what's going on here, um, what are the concerns, and when I met with her, it was kind of progressively evident that from a medical perspective, and that includes a psychiatric perspective, again, I'm a social worker, um, but we use the tenets of the psychiatry model, that she was not, in fact, a threat to herself. And, 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 it, and uh, it seemed as if the, the person was actually filed on by, uh, or at least kind of a networked file on by an abuser locally. Um, and and to this day it was never actually clear because she wasn't actually forthcoming with that part of it but it was evident to me that there was something wrong because she shouldn't have been put through the system She she was she was she was there was not a concern, not from me and not from the other members of the interdisciplinary team. So from a legal perspective and from a medical perspective, she was free to go, and she quietly made her plans to leave. But to me, it was evident that there was something going on there. And I, and I, like I said, I I kind of look back on that case as a prime example of very likely what was happening there was that she was filed on by an abuser, or at least was networked through a situation where the abuser had some control over the affidavit. Um, she had alluded to some of this, but again, it wasn't willing to be forthcoming, and I mean, understandably so. So that was one situation where I think there was a clear abuse of the system. And fortunately for, for her, she wasn't held for too long, but she shouldn't have been held at all. Um, in another case, uh, I had a gentleman who was admitted to the unit who he was actually the abuser, and he had a history of that. Um, but was somehow able to reach out to his partner during the time that he was in the unit. And so the partner would come and speak to me as the the social worker in the unit, and she would ask, well, can I see him? I think he's actually fine. Uh, I would like to help him. Um, I would like to be kind of, he's telling me that he's he's all right now. And yet all the evidence that we could collect through, again, another psychosocial assessment suggested otherwise. And it was a very difficult place to be uh, because, again, she really wanted to see him, and yet she had, from from all evidence to of the information we were able to collect, she was actually the target of, of abuse, so it was a struggle again where it felt like he had some control over her, and she was actually making excuses and feeling compelled to help him and kind of be a rescuer and this is again i don't this is not meant to blame anybody in the situation but yet to demonstrate sort of the dynamic at play there. Um, and so, in my role, I was working with her to kind of consider what options does she have. Does she feel safe? And uh, through that conversation, I think we were able to come to get some, at least some resolutions that were supportive for her. So those are these two com- two examples that I think might help illustrate what you might be asking. But I'm, I'm more than happy to go someplace else with that if you if you need me to. Yeah,
1: Rachel, can you think of examples where I I I will tell you right now that I I wish I had a dollar for every time I heard an abuser say, "Well, she's crazy." She's crazy. Mm-hmm. That's the only reason that we have these problems. She's crazy. And if it's an abuser who knows how to use the system, um then they can do they can make the accusations and get that uh, 48-hour hold and things like that because all you have to do is indicate that the person has uh, threatened ha- to harm themselves or others and that gives you the basis for requesting that kind of legal hold on a person for an evaluation. Rachel, am I right there? Yeah. Mhm.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, abusers are master manipulators. You know, they, they control and abuse and coerce their victims and survivors, but often they're very, very charming, they're very charismatic, and people believe them, courts believe them. Um, I do want to address, actually, um, and, and I, I did mention a little bit before the stigma of mental illness, um, but I do want to also address how it works outside the court system. Um, a very common tactic, again, for abusers um, as, a, as a tool of power control is to um, to exert economic abuse, um, and that uh-huh. frequently involves, um, for example, sabotaging um, the victim or survivor's work. So it's not uncommon for an abuser to call up an employer and say, "You know, I think my partner, I think she is developing mental illness. Um, Can you keep an eye on her? Tell me if you see any of these signs."
1: Um, Oh my God! Really? I've never heard of that. Are you kidding me? Oh yeah! I wish I I was
2: right. Um, And so they use it to sabotage sabotage work because there is this stigma and people say, oh, this employee has mental illness. I don't, you know, I don't trust her to be here in the workplace to be giving her best effort and um, doing a good job and not being a threat to the people around her. Um, So it's one of many ways. And if you take away a woman or a a victim or survivor of of any gender, their um, economic autonomy then that just makes them more reliant on, on the abuser. Um, and, and they, you know, abusers use the same thing to undermine relationships with family and friends um, because there is such a strong stigma attached to this idea of mental illness.
1: Wow. I want to spend a couple more minutes talking about this because it's so pervasive. And I really, mm-hmm. I've not heard a lot of talk and when when there are, general discussions about domestic violence among people who are not necessarily professionals, I don't hear this being mentioned at all. I, I just don't hear this as part of the discussion. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think it's an important discussion. Right now I'm going to go to one of our callers, if you don't mind, Steve and uh, Rachel. And uh, let's see if um, – caller, are you there? Yes, I am. Lee. Hi. What's your name, please?
3: Marilee McLean, Kevin. Oh,
1: hi, Marilee. Marilee has been on our show before. Um, Marilee, what do you think of our discussion so far? Are we spot on, or do you have something that that you can correct or add?
3: No, I I think you're spot on, and um, it's kind of all the things that I discuss. Um, I'm a domestic violence expert, and I have been in the field for 25 years, and I deal with women every day going through this, and um, they're telling me, You know, they're labeled with, um, they're like, uh, they're enmeshed in their children's lives and that they're the domestic abuser and the man will call the, or she'll call the police and then the man will come to the door where the police come and he scratches his face. And I mean like an inch long scratch and this mom goes into jail and then she loses her children and that was probably four years ago and she still hasn't seen her children. She gets a phone call once a week. And I I hear it every day. And, of course, um, the coercive control and the emotional abuse, but within the court system, they're very good. Like uh, what, um, gosh, I forgot your name. <laughs> uh, Rachel was saying. Rachel or how they're manipulative. No, Rachel said that it was how they're manipulative and coercive control and they're charismatic and charming. And I absolutely went through that myself. And um, that's what my book is about because, that is what happens. They are so controlling. Uh, my ex would do things like stalk me, and the two therapists that were involved in my case that were brought in were known for siding with a male and never finding abuse. But not only that, they, um, they quoted Richard Gardner throughout my whole evaluation, and they stated that they wouldn't listen to the domestic violence that I was in. It wasn't even in their evaluation. And then they stated that I had a hysterical personality disorder and I had PAS. <clears throat> and so that was used heavily in my case, and that's used heavily in all these mothers' cases. And I get thousands of calls in, in, in the last 25 years, and I get hundreds. But every single day a mother calls me. I was interviewing a mother just uh, yesterday for being an intern with an organization, a nonprofit I'm with. And as I'm talking to her, I find out she's a domestic violence survivor, and she got taken to jail. And that uh, she lost her 10-year-old and her 2-year-old. And they didn't really go through um, mental health evaluations like what they do with most of these cases, but they just did it. And I was really shocked to hear how they did it, you know. So if this is going on rampantly and the gaslighting, these guys are incredibly good at what they do.
1: Yeah. Thank you, uh, uh, Marilee. I'm going to um, put you. I'm going to put you on mute here for a second so we can get comments from uh, Rachel and Steve. Um, uh, let's start with you, Steve. Is this similar to what you saw <laughs> in your hospital setting?
0: Yes, absolutely, and unfortunately so. One of the things that I would see when I worked in intensive care, which unfortunately I think it even goes without saying that we would get a fair a, a share of patients coming in who were victims of domestic abuse. Uh, that uh, patients would come in, and then at that time, obviously, they're not they're not able to make decisions for themselves. So there's always this challenge to determine well who does make the decision. And I feel very grateful that our system did a, a decent job training us on how to evaluate not just the legal rem you know step of who goes next in the chain of decision makers. We had to be very sensitive about people who presented themselves, say, as spouses who were married when they were not. Uh, or people would have kind of a role in that person's life when in fact they were estranged, maybe on the cusp of divorce, Uh, we had to be very sensitive to whether or not we were actually speaking to a person who was the abuser or not the abuser, and uh, it just comes down to that. Uh, One thing that I would see uh, happen is people would come in, and as people are recovering, as patients are recovering, there'd be uh, people coming in with documentation saying, please sign, can you have this patient sign this as soon as she is able? And it's, something like a financial power of attorney, which grants tons of financial power over the patient. And I have to say that we did a lot of education with uh, our interdisciplinary teams to make sure that they understood how we should just not be doing that, how we should not have any patient sign documents at that stage of their recovery, just because it's so dangerous to have somebody exercise that much power. And unfortunately, on occasion, this would happen. And uh, I can't stress enough that if you're in the ICU, please don't have anybody find a document like that until the patient is absolutely clear to make decisions for themselves. Um, I think people try to be nice. They try to facilitate the situation. But there are so many things that we need to be on the lookout for. And that's, that economic uh, uh, abuse is, is highly prevalent yeah. at that stage of care.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, Rachel, have you seen anything like that, like uh, Mel- uh, Marilee's story?
2: Yeah, it's it's very common actually. Um, especially, you know, she she was she was mentioning um, the, the the PAS um, parental alienation syndrome, um, which just for people who who aren't familiar with it, um, it is a fictional disorder. It is not recognized as a legitimate disorder by mental health, the medical, legal communities. Um, it was very publicly rejected by the American Psychological mm. Association, the National Council of Family and Juvenile Court Justices. Um, it's not admissible in courts in the U.K. and in Canada. Nevertheless,
1: nevertheless, nevertheless. there are nevertheless. people who believe in yep. it with their hearts and souls.
2: Yes. Um, um, and, and again, maybe strongly, I should Strongly endorse. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. well let's uh, explain it just
1: a little bit for, for people who might not know what it is. Parental alienation syndrome was uh, actually created – Oh, gosh, in the uh, uh, 80s, and it was developed by a, a person with questionable credentials. But basically what he said is, well, if a child doesn't want to see his or her father, clearly the only reason would be because the mother is poisoning the child against the father. That's it. No other reason that a child might not want to see it. So, therefore, we have to punish this mother um, by removing her access to the children and giving total access and total control to the to the father. Um, did I sum that one up okay?
2: <laughs> yeah, no, no, that, that's great. Um, and and mm-hmm. I, I do want to add that, that this includes um, kids who have been subject to physical violence by the abusive parent, sexual abuse by the abusive parent, Um you know, approximately 58,000, this is an estimate, but 58,000 children are placed with abusive parents annually. Um, And, you know, those kids, they're going to those, you know, they're placed with the abusive parents. They're abused. They're molested. Sometimes they're even killed. Um, and, And that, again, is a very, very common abuse tactic. If a victim or survivor is thinking about leaving an abusive relationship, one a, a very, very common tactic is for the abuser to say, well, I'm going to get custody of the kids. You're never going to be able to see mm-hmm. your kids again. Or to threaten the kids, threaten to kill the kids, threaten to um, abscond with the kids. Um, and right here what you have is n- misguided um, courts Um relying on quote-unquote expert testimony by people who are relying on a completely discredited and basically junk junk science theory. Um, And the courts are facilitating the abuse and just making it easier for the abuser.
1: And I think it stems from a total misunderstanding of what it means to be a, to to have an intimate partner violent abuser. People just don't get it. I talk to people frequently and I will mention a mother, for example, who may have lost her children in court in a court decision in a situation like this. And I invariably get a, "Well, what was wrong with her? What was wrong?" Well, the courts wouldn't just take away her child unless there was something wrong with her. Add that stigma about mental health and then you add this total blind faith that obviously the courts wouldn't do something like that. Um, And it's just a a, a recipe for disaster uh, for women who are going through this kind of thing. The other thing that I wanted to mention to you, Rachel, that came to mind is, and I think it's time we segue into that, mental health counselors have often played a role in court cases. Their reports, their forensic reports, their evaluations – whether we're, we're talking about custody for either a child or an, uh, a, a, an incapacitated person, um, cor- courts and um, mental health evaluations are kind of uh, linked in many, many areas. And when you have courts and the power of the court come into play here, then you're opening a whole new Ball game. You're opening opening up a whole new can of worms because now we have not just a mental health counselor who is counseling a person who's having difficulties. We're having a mental health counselor who is writing an evaluation that a judge will believe. Correct and me if I, I'm I wrong, just want to yeah. So I do want to
2: I do want to introduce a couple um, ca- caveats. Not okay. Good. I, you know. Most judges and most courts are not doing this. Most judges and most courts, you know, they have the training. They know that parental alienation syndrome isn't actually a valid condition. Um, And so I I, I don't want to give the impression that um, all the courts are incompetent because that is not the case at all. Um, okay. We did will, our caveat. So
1: now let's talk about. I, we, did our, we did our caveat. <laughs> now let's um, talk about some of these egregious cases. I mean, I, I, I and, and I'm sorry that I'm being impatient with you, Rachel, but I live in King County, Washington, which is probably one of the most exemplary areas for understanding uh, domestic violence in the court system throughout the court system, and yet I still see some really egregious examples of. of Things happening in courts, and I live in a really great area. They, they do a wonderful job for the most part, and yet it's still there. Uh, so I, I appreciate what you're saying about the vast majority of courts are educated, blah, 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 but I think even with the it, – it's still a huge – even with a caveat, it is still a huge problem out there.
2: It, it is a huge problem, absolutely. I just, I just want to make sure that um, if there are victims and survivors – who are listening to the con- this conversation, they don't feel afraid to get protective orders or to take whatever steps oh, they right. need okay. yeah, that well, might course, involve yeah. the judicial system to, to, yeah. to protect themselves. So I, I just want to sure. put that out there. Um, Steve, I think maybe this idea of the role of the mental health professional is a little bit more mm-hmm. more um, in your line than mine? Well,
0: it, it, it certainly is in the... In the uh, in The uh, the area that I'm coming from is, of course, in direct care at trauma one-level hospital care. I will say this, though, with having interacted with my colleagues over the years and my colleagues who are involved with the court system, that one of the key things that is important for best practice when it comes to mental health counseling or social work engagement, and again, my, my core background of profession is social work, and I'm very respectful of that history because it's obviously a profession I value they will always tell me the same thing, which is if you do good work and the idea is that you're doing ethical best practice, you will develop an understanding and a work, you will have a good relationship with your court system. That includes the attorneys working in the system, the judges working in the system. Again, this is not to alleviate or take away from the very thing that you're talking about, about the egregious abuses of those things, which I know exist. Um, but from a professional standpoint, the best practice is to make sure that you're engaging in Uh, doing the best work you can and developing that relationship with the team that you will see or the, you know, the system that you work with every day. And again, not to make excuses for the issues that do come up, but that's, that's my background. Um, if I file an affidavit, for example, as somebody who was working at the hospital, I have to make sure that I can defend that because we always had to make sure of – we always kept in mind, well, what would this look like if this was in court? How would this appear to you? How would this be pulled apart? Are you ready to defend the work that you're writing? Um, so in a, in a perfect world – so I stress that we are in that world – Uh, But in a perfect world, you'd be able to defend the work that you do. Um, But unfortunately, in the world that we live in, we know that isn't happening. And so I do want to acknowledge the fact that those are the issues that are out there that are probably stemming from things like bad practice or assumptions made by people relying on so-called conventional knowledge of um, mental health care that is outdated, there's no evidence, things of that nature and again for practitioners we have to be not just educated well licensed what have you but we also have to keep up with the with the latest evidence that comes out with things that, that pertain with work that pertains to mental health care we can't just rest on the laurels of the knowledge we had 10 15 20 years ago so i don't know if that's helpful at all but that's coming from my background
1: well, I want to check with Marilee because it seems to me, um, Marilee, mm-hmm. have you been listening to this conversation? Because it seems to me you mentioned to me yeah. not too long ago that you're working with a court system to try and mm-hmm. um, alleviate some of these situations or to try to help judges learn more. Can Can you talk about that at all, Marilee?
3: Yes. Um, I'm with uh, Moms Fight Back uh, in Colorado, and we're setting up a system where they'll be trained for judges and just and not only judges be uh, district level and criminal level. And so we have BU law students and uh, social and sociology graduate students doing surveys because we have so much of this. And and the domestic violence and using PAS, I mean I, I tend to agree with Rachel but I don't because I, I see this every day and it's still very strong out there. And um, I've written articles on it with the American Bar Association Law Journal, and um, and I've written articles with Women E News on it. And it's still it's still rampant. And why I know so much about it is I was caught up in that. Just what Rachel said, my daughter was sexually abused, and I had proof that she was abused. I had doctor's reports and police reports. However, she was forced to go live with her abuser, and I got supervised visits. So this is what's happening, continually. And that's the calls I'm getting from women. They're the user. I testified before Congress on this issue many years ago, and these are healthy, loving mothers, and I have doctors, lawyers from every walk of life, and they're losing their children. So um, I don't believe the system's quite working the way it should, but I do agree that some of the judges get training, but they only get five hours a year they have to take, and that could be in anything, not necessarily domestic violence. And even when I talk to the people that are doing the training here, in Colorado, that are the top not trainers, they don't understand all this, and they are not training on this. I mean, the guy, the, the head trainer here, said, "Wow, I never even heard of this before."
1: <laughs> so it's kind of shocking, and uh, there's a lot of work to be done.
3: That's my opinion.
1: Yeah. Thank you. I'm going to put you on mute again, uh, mm-hmm. Marilee, because I'm getting some some static in the in the voice, so okay. or in the phone line. So if you ke- keep listening, and um, you know, we appreciate you being here, but I am going to put you on mute right now. Okay, so (laughs) Steve, um, you're the you are our resident mental health uh, professional here. (laughs) You represent all mankind when it comes to mental health professionals for this the purposes of this show. Mm -hmm. Um, Have you seen this professionally, where the mental health professional just doesn't understand? doesn 't get it, and therefore the decisions that are being made are just really kind of faulty have you Have you seen this
0: well again i'll kind of go back to uh, what I was uh, what I was talking about before what i yes I mean if you have somebody who isn't engaging in uh, best practice, which means not only are they working from in, from a perspective of what's most ethical uh, but also working with the perspective of well, I'll go back to the interdisciplinary team model. That's where I'm most. Uh, that's where my background is. Is not only are we working in that environment that's knowledgeable, but are we, are we avoiding making logical fallacies or logical leaps in judgment in terms of what are we witnessing when we intervene on any patient? So when I work in that environment, say, let's go back to the hospital for example, and a patient comes in, and a patient is evaluated, there will be members of the team. And it could include the mental health worker. It just depends on, again, where they're coming from. Are we making assumptions about why they came into the hospital or what? why are they in a, in a dangerous situation or are they confabulating on all those things that we have to sort out? Um, if you're working, I guess I'll just try to put it this way. Yes, I have worked with members of interdisciplinary teams where I felt as if there were value judgments being applied against the patient. We weren't working in that patient's best interest. We weren't evaluating them thoroughly, or we were making assumptions about the decisions they were making, or we were blaming them. And so from my perspective, it's so important as somebody who is coming from the mental health background or the social work background, which includes mental health, um, a licensed practice background to not only evaluate and do a thorough psychosocial assessment, but be constantly engaging with our medical, medical team uh, to make sure that people are all aware of what the concerns are and why we're coming to that conclusion or why we have concerns about others who are participating in that person's care. It's a very tricky place to be because yeah. as much as we put the patient in the center of our care, I think if you go to any hospital, you'll see this diagrammed in materials where the circle in the middle is the patient and then this team is sort of an equal balance around that patient. In fact, I think it's fair to say that there is still a hierarchy that places the physician on top of that. And then everybody else kind of falls behind that. And now I say that and I want to stress that the beneficence of medical care among all team members, including physicians, is high. The model should always be high. And yes, the patient's in the middle. But implicitly, there is sometimes an an expectation that we fall behind uh, a diagnosis or an, an invention that might not necessarily be accurate. And we sometimes might do some basic stuff that is wrong, like make an assumption about why a, a a woman who comes in, for example, is in a situation that she's in, or what are the best interventions for that for that person. I've had people ask me, well, why not? Can, can you call the police for me because this person is coming in, and they are they're clearly abused, and she doesn't have the courage to take care of business. So can you help her? And that's a tricky place to be because yes, I empathize with that medical model of intervention, saying just fix it but we still have self-determination to address so that the person who's coming in has the right to make decisions for themselves. And it was, it's just as Rachel mentioned, um, I think it was Rachel that had mentioned this, that the time of most danger for a lot of people who are in domestic violence situations is when they attempt to leave. And so when they come into the ER, that is a very difficult time. We want to be as supportive and helpful for them as possible, but we can't always take the actions that we think are important or best because that person's going to Feel the brunt of that, and if I do something as simple or or what I think to be innocuous as hand my business card to that person, that they take out with them, that could put them at risk because then their material could go through their wallet, could go through there, somebody could go through their purse and find this social worker's card, and that could be a high risk to them. So we have to be very thoughtful about things like that. So I I guess I don't want to kind of give this sort of long-winded answer, but I think yes, do I see bad practice in, in engagement when we're in those environments? Yes, but the bad practice isn't necessarily because people are uh, actively trying to do a bad job. They're just working from outdated or perhaps presumptions that should not be made about a person's care needs. And so the social worker or the mental health professional who's in that environment, and that includes LMHCs in the state of Iowa, for example, or ARMPs, the advanced nurse practitioners, who can also engage in all this, we're all working together to try to address the best needs of the patient, but we have to be conscientious of what am I doing that's going to be a best for them that gives them self-determination but also provides them support so they can make a good decision or maybe help, you know, make a decision that helps themselves better.
1: Well, um, and we, in all fairness, sure. we all operate from mm-hmm. our own history, our own assumptions, our own yes. um, background, training, feelings, you know, history. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we are all just human beings. But I want to mm-hmm. just kind of, you know, get a handle on this. Uh, this, uh, You know, I, I, I say I'm a linear thinker, but I'm a very disorganized person, so I don't know if those are Same incompatible sure. characteristics. Um, but if I don't do this kind of linear check thing, then I, I lose track of what I'm, sure. what I'm talking about. So I want to go back. We started the show saying that we're talking about mental health and mm-hmm. mental health conditions, mental health accusations, and mental health evaluations, oh, sure. and mental health judgments, mm-hmm. and how all of those can be used by an abuser. And we've alluded Mm -hmm. to a number of ways, you know, I mean, basically making a person, you know, individual life horrible. Um, But then we've also talked about, you know, making it, having that dribble over into other areas, especially (laughs) the court system. Um, Mm -hmm. What about forensic evaluators? I've always Mm -hmm. been amazed, and, and let me give you my caveat. I am. Um, I have been working for several years on a Ph.D. in organizational psychology, uh, psychology not clinical. I'm about halfway through my dissertation at this point. Um, I don't know if I'm going to live long enough to see it to the end, but <laughs> that's where I am. And so I have some grasp of, you know, psychological understanding and some grasp of, you know, this whole process and how this works. So i 'm not coming from a totally blind. Nevertheless, I have an extremely difficult time understanding how clinical psychologists and social workers can blindly accept something that, uh, from, that a person who comes into their office says about another person. Mm-hmm. To the point, now I understand that you have to do that in order to treat the person. You have to take them at face value. Mm -hmm. But then when you are in a position of having to write an evaluation or a recommendation for a court or for a third party, how can you continue blindly accepting what that particular client has to say without any caveats? I don't understand that. Nobody's talking. Like, <laughs> Steve, I'm going to use well, to was, that one. <laughs>
0: I thought maybe. I thought maybe so. I just wanted to make sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I, yeah, yeah, I know you were, <laughs> I know what you were wanting to, to do. Uh, <laughs> you were wanting I to think, avoid uh, it like the plague. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, it is very difficult, and so I want to say a couple things in response to that, and that first of all, when anybody comes into, not necessarily, an I didn't actually work in a place where people were coming in an office. I was coming into their space, whether it was bedside in the emergency treatment center or in the inpatient unit for psychiatry, and to come in and take an assessment from, you know, kind of, well, I should say rather than take, Uh, provide an opportunity to complete a a biopsychosocial assessment, the idea that we're trying to encompass all of this knowledge about uh, where they're coming from medically. Um, Again, they're in a medical environment, so a lot of that's already been written for us, but also there are other stuff that we need to try to capture as quickly and as efficiently as possible, their background, their history, what brings them here, what are their thinking is. That would be different, I would say, from accepting blindly uh, all their information that they're giving us uh, in the, in the environment of a hospital, you don't really have a plan to meet with those, per, those folks, perhaps, you know, a week or two weeks, or you have a, you might only visit with them one time. So you have to be conscientious about your doing it doing at that one moment. And so if you take an assessment from a patient, yes, I mean, there is this fundamental step that says, let them talk to you, let them get to know you. Uh, but, There's no, uh, you, you certainly can engage in providing some opportunity to challenge what you're hearing. Even that's backing up and saying, I want to clarify something. So I hear you're saying this, but I also hear you saying this. Can you help me understand? Kind of bring some clarity to that. And so the patient can speak to that. When I complete an assessment, I would then have an opportunity at the end of it to write my impressions. My impressions may include this person seems to be from, you know, this person appears to be, or this person is speaking from a place that I believe to be honest. um, Or I could express some concern in the the impression section of that document that says, I really don't know if I'm clear if this person is able to speak to this, whatever this is, you know, and, and that could be anything. So I want to just point out that I don't necessarily believe that social workers would continue to blindly accept what's being told of them. Um, it's rather, you need to make some professional judgments to be clear on what yes. you're hearing and to be fair and say, I don't know if necessarily this is accurate and I have some concerns and these are what the concerns are. So I would push back. Okay, a what little you're describing
1: that, though right? in, in the hospital is a little bit mm-hmm. different from what I was originally thinking, but it's a good point. Sure. Um, what I was mm-hmm. thinking, and I, I think I'm going to go to Mary for this. Um, Mary Lee, are you still with us? Are you still with us, Marilyn? Yes I,
3: yes, I am. I'm here. So okay. I I um,
1: what I'm trying mm-hmm. to get at uh, with my question, Steve, is when um, abusers go to court, well, in, you don't even have to be an abuser. You go to court, if there's any kind of battle whatsoever, you've got mm-hmm. his psychologist, her psychologist, their psychologist. I mean, y- you've got ancillary people coming out of the woodwork. Um, And all Mm -hmm. those people file reports for the court, and let's see, his psychologist will pretty much say she's, you know, he's fine and he's wonderful, and any problems that he might have are the cause of her, and her psychiatrist will say the same thing. Um, So that was kind of the basis for my question. Marilee, have you seen Mm -hmm. that, where um, in forensic reports by mental health professionals um, in court, um, are, are... Help me out here, Marilee. Are you, do, you, do you understand what I'm trying well, to get Well,
3: I'm, sure. I'm not sure what you're saying. I, I mean, I've seen, and I if I'm, tell me if I'm right at what you're asking, but I've seen forensic reports done and, and there's proof that, say, the child is being abused and there, the, the woman has evidence. In most of those cases, there's domestic violence going on. And they, they figure about 70% of the time if, when it's that kind of an issue um, there 's domestic violence going on, and then if it 's um, yeah. if it 's sexual abuse it 's 90 percent of the time in the stats but but i don 't really yeah. understand your question, so can you work okay the let can me, me, let, me
1: it. Let, let me rephrase it let me rephrase it. I have seen reports from psychologists who were hired by an abuser to report oh, yeah. how any kind of bad thing that he might have done or that, that might be construed as bad as far as trial custody or whatever was because she influenced him to do it. Or she, the, the uh, I'm thinking of one report that I saw where, yes, the, the father admitted that he hit the child. However, the mother had hit the child so repeatedly that the father felt that if he hit the child first that she wouldn't hit him as badly. How oh, can, and and a judge is is reading that um steve have you ever seen anything like that
0: oh i'm aware that there may be people there are people that might speak from a place of being some sort of expert witness or expert testimony and they provide that information and i would i i would not defend that at the same time i know that we work in a legal system where they're trying to chip away at each other's situation or each other's case it's not ethical to portray someone in a situation. At least from my, from my, again, from the code of ethics of social work, it is not ethical to provide uh, a sense or information about a person's. Uh, when you, let's say, for example, complete a psychosocial assessment, that's not accurate, or not, or that you don't present uh, any concern that you might have about this person's veracity for what they're talking about. So that's always on the line with somebody who is perhaps providing, again, I think what you're describing, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, a kind of expert testimony, this idea that they're coming in and they're speaking from this place. Um, anybody in any profession, I don't think it's exceptional to social work, but anybody who's providing information should be doing it from a, from a place of what is the best ethic presentation. If they're not doing that, then they're working outside their ethical scope. Um okay. Okay, the, let me interrupt you
1: because uh, I'm I'm looking yeah. at the clock here. So, Rachel, j- have you ever seen anything like that? Where I, what I'm mm-hmm. getting at is, we're talking about how an abuser can use mental health or mental health accusations um, to further victimize um, a, a, another person. Um, they can do it in on an individual basis by you know gaslighting that we talked about. They can do it by um, uh, manipulating the system so that the person can actually be put in for a, like a 48-hour hold, blah, blah, blah. They can do it through the court system. And my question, I guess, comes down to how often are mental health counselors or professionals manipulated as well into doing something to help further abuse the victim?
2: Yeah, and I think you just hit the nail right on the head. It's manipulation and I think Marilee mentioned this before and I did as well that these people who are abusers they don't walk around with abuser tattooed on their foreheads right they I mean a lot of them are very popular in their communities Um, they they have the charm they have the charisma and they're very persuasive and if you have a mental health professional who you know, they're, they're a person just like everybody else and has, have been bombarded with all the same societal messages that everyone else gets it, right? So yeah. your average person on the street who doesn't understand the dynamics of of domestic abuse and intimate partner violence, they might not be able to recognize all of those signs and they might not be able to understand the dynamics, um, and how an abuser would use them as a power, as a tool of, of control. Um, and obviously we would like to think that our mental health professionals do have a higher um, level of training than that. But they are but not so susceptible necessarily. to those systems. Not yeah, no, not necessarily. You know, it depends on their background, it depends on their expertise, it depends on, mm-hmm. like Steve said, how interested they are in their own in their own professional development, if they've been keeping up with the literature, um, and they have those implicit biases just like everybody mm-hmm. else does, and they have um, those ingrained messages about what domestic abuse is, and. You know, so so they think, oh, well, she doesn't have any broken bones. He must be telling the truth. I, that, I mean, that's very much an oversimplification. Yeah. Um. But okay. In in a way, yeah. they're reflective of general societal messages.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, in other words, they're human beings. Um, they're human and, beings. Yeah. And and all of us as human beings are are pretty flawed when it comes down oh. to it. Um, So, okay, and again, I sound like I'm rushing you because I am. I'm looking at our clock and I'm going, oh, my gosh, we've barely scratched the surface here. Um, So what can we do about it? Let's look at it from three standpoints and Steve I'm going to go back to you again. Um sure. well no, let's go to Rachel. Rachel, what can we do about it? If if I am a woman or and and I'm sorry, the majority of victims of domestic violence are women, so let's just say if I'm a woman who mm-hmm. is experiencing this, um what what do I do? I, I, if I'm in the situation where I'm being gaslighted or I'm starting to question or my, my mental health is being questioned by my partner, um, what do I do about that? Where can I turn?
2: Um, yeah, that's a great question. And, and once again, I, w- I would like to um, direct people to the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Their phone number is 1-800-799-7233, one 799 7233 They are a 24-7 um, organization. They're partially privately funded and partially uh, funded by the federal government. Um, and they will provide resources. If if you need a uh, referral to a local program, um, they will help you with that. They will help you with safety planning, and they will answer your questions. So if you're not sure whether you're being abused, if you have questions, or if you have a friend and you are seeing certain um, signs and you want to know, is my f- friend being abused? What can I do to help? Um, they can answer all those questions. They're... Um, they're a really great resource. Um, you can also they they do chat and text, um, and you can find that information at thehotline.org. Um, and so yeah, that it's a great
1: place is to always just our first call off. and talk. It's a great yeah. place to just call and talk in a non-threatening way. You might get some resources. You might get some answers. It's a wonderful, wonderful resource. So um, I, I recommend it highly, and I thank you, Rachel, for pointing that out. Steve, what if I'm at the uh, different uh, point in our conversation where I feel like I'm being manipulated or uh, a forensic psychologist, for example, or uh, are there resources for me? What can I do if I feel like this is dragging into a court system or a child custody system and it's an abusive misuse and manipulation of mental health. Can you mm-hmm. think of any resources for a person?
0: Well, there are a couple that I can think of as a practitioner. I don't have a number to give because each there are many professions that fit within the realm of, of practice at this level, so I, it would be hard for me to speak to them all. Sure. Uh, from a social work standpoint, there are two things I, I want to emphasize. Our ethical code requires that we engage in in supervision and counseling for ourselves so that we can get an insight into best practice. We shouldn't always be – we don't practice in a vacuum. And so we shouldn't be making, you know, especially when we have concerns about a patient who is engaging with me that I or I should I, I say patient, whomever that person might be. that I'm concerned sure. about gaslighting. I'm, I feel like I'm being led down about you. Have, you are you are actually requ- you know, I want to say required The the opportunity to have good. Uh, uh, counseling or support, or uh, the, the terminology I should be looking for is supervision. Uh, that should be something you establish right away in your profession, like even somebody you can go to to say, hey, I have a case scenario I need to run through past you, and this would be something that should be allowed so that you have some insight into what's going on with you. The other piece uh, going on with you, sorry, that sounded odd. So you get some insight into how you're thinking about a situation where you might have a sense that there's, this is I'm conflicted about what I'm being told. The second piece to this, and I can't stress this enough, is that professions, not just social work, but, you know, any profession that is going to engage in mental health uh, intervention, assessment, diagnosis, treatment, I believe every state should have a licensure system for that profession so that the public is protected from bad actors. And I bring this up only because just this year we're seeing several states be uh, – con- several state legislators are considering taking away licensing boards so that, you know, the, pre- the, the premise behind that is let's increase competition in the market by taking away this government regulation. When in fact I think that regulation is absolutely imperative to protect the public from bad performers of mental health care. That's what a license is for. And like I said, right now we're seeing some advancement in several states to take that away from various practitioners. And I just think that's not a good step for us to take. because, look, it's going to affect people who we are talking about today, the people who are being gaslit, the people that are being abused and are being you know, labeled with mental health illnesses that they do not have, um, that abuse. And this is just another step in the process to protect the public from participation from the professional realm of care so that people will be, people. at least should have some trust in the system at some level and, unfortunately, the whole one of the things we've been talking about today is there's a lack of trust, and, and rightfully so. So what do we do about that? And I believe this is something right. that we need to keep the integrity in.
1: Okay, great. Marilee, I want to go to you. Are you still with us?
3: Yes, I am here. I'm here.
1: Oh, great. Uh, we've got like two minutes left. If I'm a person and I find myself in this situation, what do you have some resources? Do you have some ideas of where somebody can go? Whether they're involved in the court system or whether they're involved at a more personal level, do you have suggestions? Well,
3: I I I, I believe today there's so much information out there, and I know of a lot of um, organizations. Like um, I'm looking at the side where a woman is trying to protect herself and her children, and um, there's California Protective Parents Association, or there's. Uh, the Women's Coalition, and I'm looking at women. Again, I know this happens to men, but I'm looking at the women. And um, and then again, you know, my book is, print mine is about PAS, but it's also called Prosecuted But Not Silenced, Courtroom Reform for Sexually Abused Children. But what it is is an educational tool for judges, lawyers, social workers, psychologists, and it's a way to bring them around to what's happening. And I, and I, I believe that a lot of people understand that, and the women that are going through this have to reach out. They don't even know what hits them, and if they get, um, I, I believe a, a therapist. I we have several here in Colorado that we did a system where they were, we would put a limit on what they could get as evaluators. So a state custody evaluator could, we were getting twenty thousand to thirty to forty thousand dollars to do these evaluations. We put a limit on it to two thousand, but they changed their name from CFIs to PREs, so the private ones, so they can charge more. And so I would say to a woman, you know, um, get your ducks in a row. And you really have to plan how you're going to get out of this. And then once again, um, know that we have a, a place here called the Rose Andam Center. So it's one place that the woman goes in a domestic violence situation. So she doesn't have to fill out paperwork everywhere else and, and go around. And it gets, they get the advice that they need before they go on. Once they get in the court system, I believe still that the judges don't get this. Um, most judges want to see the black eye or the beating up, and I know there's some judges that do get it and are trained in it, but I'm seeing the opposite, that they're not getting it, and these women are losing their children to the abuser, and that is critical. So that's all I have to say.
1: Well, I think that says a lot. So thank you so much, Marilee. Thank you. I'm looking at the clock. I can't believe we only have like 50 seconds left. Rachel, thank you so much um, for all of your input on this show. I really appreciate it. I think we need to do this again. This is a conversation we need to have and we need to have it frequently. Steve, I appreciate your input. Uh, you've added an invaluable perspective to this conversation, and I do appreciate your being here. And merrily, of course, as always, you're a valuable asset. I must say I usually end the show with a quote. I have no quote today. I have no quote. Uh, I, um, I just couldn't come up with anything. So um, we'll get back to the quotes next week. Um, but meanwhile, you have a quote from me. No matter how art it is there's somebody out there who knows what you're going through you just have to find them please join us next week we're going to have julie Anson, a researcher talk about power and control so thank you for joining us on three women three ways